hello everyone. I'm Reverend Carla and welcome to Spirituality Matters, a podcast that focuses on the intersection of spirituality and humanity. Let's settle in and find that sacred space between here where I am and there where you are. And let us be reminded that the holy transcends our physical bodies and our time together is just as sacred and meaningful as if we were sitting beside one another. Today's episode is entitled, Whose Land Do You Stand Upon? Eight Ways to Blend Your Sacred Activism with Your Spirituality and Help Deconstruct Toxic Ideologies. This podcast is inspired by my blog post for this week that you can find at RevCarla.com. So in the blog, I share how the fall season is my favorite time of the year. I'm sure it has something to do with just the magic around my birthday, but I also love the holidays and the changing of the season. And it always brings me back to the memories of the paper that we had, copy paper that we used in school. So if you've never had the the blessing <laughs> of smelling copy paper that's been run through a mimeograph, you just do not know what you're missing because Every, every one of us would put it up to our no, our noses to smell it. And what we were really smelling was chemicals. It was the duplicator fluid that they used that was comprised of methanol and isopropanol. No wonder we were all such good kids. No wonder we were all so, such, so submissive. They must've been using as part of their, part of their patriarchal indoctrination to keep us under control, but that's what's wrong with the children of the 60s right there. But every November without fail, we'd be handed uh, the papers that depicted the first Thanksgiving meal between the pilgrims and the Native Americans. Talk a little bit about Native American history. And of course, we did that through the lens of what the, the white splaining or the whitewashing of our history. So we would set to dutifully coloring these pictures. We did a lot of coloring. Yeah, I just remember doing a lot of coloring and we we were able to have a little artistic liberty, but we did have to use a lot of golds and browns and oranges to really make it feel like the fall season. Not a lot of artistic uh, liberty there, but it never occurred to any of us um, that the pictures that we were coloring didn't accurately reflect the true history of Thanksgiving. Why would we question that? I mean, we had been doing this for years. You could, you know, by the time you were in second grade, you could see a picture and say, oh, that's a Thanksgiving picture. And those are the pilgrims and those are the Native Americans. And oh, that's such a beautiful scene. And how wonderful that the Native Americans willingly gave up their lands, willingly helped the pilgrims because they understood that without them, they were certainly going to perish. So remember, this was the 60s. This was a time when not only was it expected that you would pray in school, you would get in trouble if you didn't. I remember many of my classmates who got in trouble and had to sit in time out if they didn't have their eyes closed uh, during prayer. So this was a time also when at towards the end of schools, churches would routinely come in to deliver baskets of goodies to us and invite us to their vacation Bible school. So they had the ability to come in and just talk to us about whatever we wanted to. So if you want to look at what is wrong with your boomer grandparents and parents, look at our religious patriarchal indoctrination and how it's blended with our educational patriarchal indoctrination. And you can see we 
there wasn't any aspect of our life where we were not fully indoctrinated into patriarchy. And I don't really recall specific teachings about Thanksgiving and the colonization of this country. They certainly didn't call it colonization at that time. I do know that it was implied in these teachings that there were, quote, good Indians, their, their words, not mine. They were the ones who willingly helped the colonizers. They were the ones who enthusiastically gave up their lands their rights to the lands and were exceedingly happy to have a bunch of white people who would now modernize this this land and save them from ultimate disaster because how in the world were these native americans going to survive without the brains and brutal raw strength of the white man i mean this was this was the theme of how of our history lessons that were told and I want to pause here for a minute and just recognize you're going, why are we talking about this? This is a podcast about spirituality matters. Well, it's also a pod podcast that, about the intersection of our spirituality and our humanity. And any place that we are compromising and negotiating with humane actions, then we are limiting our ability to show up as the better version of ourselves, to leave this world a better place than we found it, and not gatekeep someone else's experience. So we, we talk about these things so that you too can reflect on your life and how these things might have happened to you, but also where in your life that you could use some introspection and some contemplation about where you still might be holding on to some of these indoctrinated beliefs, carrying on. So you could ask anyone who is from a, a product of the 60s. I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly how it was. Every teaching and el every element of instruction reflected the patriarchal values that were ingrained in our familial, religious, and educational heritages. And even if we wanted to, and many of us were just too ignorant to know what we didn't know, we knew better than to push back. In every classroom, paddles hung on the wall right by the door. So you couldn't miss it when you came in. And oftentimes a teacher or a pr principal would boast how many children they had abused with that paddle by, by carving in chinks into that to show, see how many kids I've paddled? I'm not afraid of this. And I remember very plainly the principal in my fourth grade year had chinks that covered his entire paddle. Now, I never experienced that pain, but we talked about it on the playground and that those chinks made the board even more aerodynamic and it was more painful than the other paddles. So what does this have to do with how I deconstructed? Well, when you move forward to my active deconstructing years, um, I believe that there was something as simple as questioning elements of my patriarchal indoctrination made me, compelled me to go back and look at how else I had been indoctrinated. So I can remember as children huddled together on the playground, wondering why teachers seemed to really enjoy the use of this paddle that was very painful. People, children went home with bruises on their legs. And we were, we were actually questioning this inhumane treatment of us, even though we dare not challenge it. That's a form of deconstructing. We just didn't have the power to do anything about it. But at that point, when you look back, you can find places in your life that go that are beyond your active deconstruction that actually point you to the places where you were pushing up against these indoctrinated beliefs. So it 
this it, it took me years, of course, to get there because again, very power, powerful indoctrinations. But you want to know why it takes people who grew up in the 60s so long to deconstruct if they ever. The truth is the indoctrinations are so influential and powerful that most of them never do deconstruct. And I can point to many reasons I did from the abuse at the hands of relatives who should have been my protectors and guardians to the misogyny prevalent in church every Sunday that want the, the, the misogyny that said, hey, you can be whatever you want to be, but just not that man at the, at the preacher. You cannot be that. But to be whatever you want to be, Carla, that's not, that's not only not fair, it's not realistic, and it's also misogyny. So I've shared many of these stories in other writings and, and my teacher, so we're not going to focus on them here now. But all I know is that the peeling away of those indoctrinations left me very vulnerable um, and willing to discover the truth about everything that existed beyond my controlled education. So the entry points for my deconstruction ranged from reading about Christianity through the writings of John Shelby Spong, Bart Ehrman, Reza Odlin, Elaine Pagels, uh, Marcus Borg, to studying about American and British history, because that too is important, because that helped me dismantle my whitewashed education, because I was learning about not only our nation's history, but but the indoctrination, the patriarchal indoctrination in my religious heritage. Now, one of the first books that was required in my world religion courses in college was Religious Intolerance in America, which combined religion and American history into one textbook. If that's something you want to read, you can find it in my book recommendations at RevCarla.com. We appreciate you using those links because we do receive a commission. And it's, it's about history. The book is about history, but it's I openly wept as I read it. I mean, full out sobbing because I realized I was looking at elements of my truth about my white people heritage that I knew was true. So the book Religious Intolerance in America addresses the historical and ongoing abuse of Native Americans, and it sheds light on the religious and cultural intolerance they have faced throughout history because Native Americans have endured significant hardships, including violence, displacement, forced assimilation, and the destruction of their spiritual and cultural practices. And these injustices have been perpetuated in the name of religious superiority in the pursuit of the lands. So European colonizers and early American settlers viewed Native Americans as obstacles to their religious and economic goals. And they used this, they justified it through the doctrine of manifest destiny, because that played a significant role in justifying this abuse and oftentimes deception towards the Native Americans. It claimed that God had given Europeans the divine right to expand westward and conquer indigenous lands, leading to countless conflicts and displacements. So the abuse is chronicled in this book, and it tells specific things that's very, very hard to read. So you will want to spend time and give it space. It goes through several other uh, situations as well, but it spends a lot of times on a lot of time on the Native American. So we then have to look at how now we're still carrying some of that stereotype and needless and even racist stereotypes that that minimize, and 
demoralize and dehumanize the Native Americans. For instance, calling Native American savages. I remember watching a documentary on the History Channel that was actually telling about how Andrew Jackson and the United States deceived the Native Americans. And so it's giving them a showing how horrible our country treated them. But yet throughout this documentary, they referred to the Native Americans several times as savages. This perpetuates a harmful stereotype and dehumanizes an entire group of people based on their ethnicity and heritage. This term savage has historically been used as a derogatory and offensive label to justify the mistreatment, colonization, and oppression of Native American communities. It disregards their diverse, diverse cultures, their civilizations, and contributions to society. We didn't just annihilate savages. These were people who had societies, who had governance, who had structure. They, they were organized. They had organized the land. They were not savages. So this type of language reinforces harmful power dynamics and contributes to the ongoing marginalization and discrimination faced by Native American communities. So in case, so I just want to go a little bit deeper here, because in case you have never studied the Trail of Tears, it's important for you to understand the Trail of Death, which originated in Indiana, and the Trail of Tears, because they're both, they both were forced relocation of Native American tribes from their ancestral lands into the southeastern United States where not much was fertile. So these this occurred under the Indian Removal Act that was signed into law by President Andrew Jackson. And under that, the Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, and Chickasaw and Seminole tribes were among the most effective. During that time, they removed them from their, or their indigenous lands in horrific ways where over 20,000 Native Americans lost their lives. So we have to understand that through deception and brute force, we took over these lands. And again, stay with me here. Our intersection of humanity and spirituality is important for us to understand when we talk about God blessing America, this land was already blessed. This land, this land was not owned by us and it had nothing to do with manifest destiny. But the United States, like I said, employed various deceptive tactics to trick the Native Americans into signing over or leaving their lands. They would, the United States would negotiate treaties with them and then it would deceptively then come in and forcibly remove them so that the, the Native Americans felt that they had come to a compromise so that their, their guard would be down, which means they wouldn't be battle ready. And then they would come in and forcibly remove, the, remove them. This happened time and time again. And all of that was under this law called the Indiana, I'm sorry, the Indian Removal Act of 1830. So if you ever want to read a little bit more about that and the deceptive tactics that the government used, you can see how it created a really unfair 
advantage for the United States to come in and force the Native Americans off of their their ancestral lands, uh, away from their culture, right, away from their habitation, away from their eco environment, where they had a sustainable food system. All of those things were stripped from them because of the Indian Removal Act. So I knew that when I looked, re- was reading this book, the truth about my heritage was staring me right in the face. These injustices have been imper- have been perpetuated in the name of religious superiority for a number of years. And again, this is why this doctrine of manifest destiny played such a significant role and why the abuse of Native Americans also extended to the denial of their religious freedom. So for instance, not only could you have to get off your land, you could, they imposed a ban on indigenous spiritual practices and ceremonies. They weren't allowed to chant. They weren't allowed to drum. They weren't allowed to dance. They weren't allowed to dress in their festive ritual gear. They were allowed to have nothing that was due to their heritage because they were afraid of the power that they knew of people who were connected to their ancestral heritage and their own spirituality. So there are many paths to spirituality, but there were many paths to deconstructing as well. And mine just completely ripped off the blinders of everything that I knew. And I was peeling away not only my religious heritage and dogma and my biased educational teachings and my cultural beliefs about appropriation of other people's cultures, I also needed to deconstruct from the teachings that taught me that little white children made our skin made us superior to others. It was implied in everything that we did. I'm going to be honest here. And we know that that's true. Anybody who was a child of the 60s knows this. And this is an intense level of deconstructing, but it's necessary for those of us who feel that our spirituality is intricately bound to our humanness. So in order to create a more inclusive and just society, it is crucial to recognize the interconnectedness of activism and spirituality. This is how we intertwine our inner growth with our outer actions. And when we do that, we create a powerful force for positive change. Now, why is this important? besides the fact that we are exploring this interconnectedness of our spirituality and humanity, November is Native American Heritage Month. And as we unravel the roots of toxic patriarchal religious ideologies, it's important for us to hold space and acknowledge the sacredness of those people who were once here but are no more. So this activism and spirituality, they share a common thread because in both, we are pursuing truth, hopefully justice and collective well-being. And spirituality often guides us on a path of self-reflection and compassion. But when you combine that with your activism, it's with intention. It's with authenticity. It's with profound sense of how we're all connected. And no doubt will that change who we are. So how can we blend our sacred activism with our spirituality? Well, we do that through mindful action. So if we're going to spend time here in the Native American Heritage Month, consider studying contemplative practices of the Native Americans. 
not to appropriate them, but so you can understand why would our government ban those practices? Spend time with understanding them. Engage in dialogue with those who know the history and know the culture and are connected to their ancestral ancestral heritage. Create space for ritual. Again, not to appropriate. Some of the practices inside the Native American uh, tradition are closed practices. And you have to do the research to find out for yourself which ones we have been given permission in silence, in private, to participate in. That it because I have people in my circle who have who are of Native American heritage, they have given me permission to partake in some of their rituals. I do so not as an expert or to show that out to the world. I do it as an inward inward part of my own spiritual practice. So for each person, it's different. And finding those mentors can be very meaningful for you. Of course, we also do it through sacred activism where we look at what's happening in still inside the indigenous natives who are here, but don't have the same opportunities because they have been relegated to certain lands that aren't fruitful, that aren't sustainable, that many of them have health issues. Many of them are living below the poverty level. So how can we create help with that? How can we amplify the needs and and lend our voice to some of the needs that they have. Of course, always consider the inner work and shadow exploration that we must do. Our work to deconstruct and heal is never over. So make a lifelong commitment to understand what elements of yourself are speaking to you when you hear these stories and what you're ready to deconstruct from. There are several more of these that I mentioned inside the blog. So please make sure you go read that at revcarla.com. But we blend our activism with our spirituality so that we can create a transformative space where our inner growth influences our external actions. And this leads us to meaningful change in the world around us. So yes, November is Native American Heritage Month, beloved. Accept its invitation to learn Embrace its wisdom, receive the blessings this month offers us. For it was just a heartbeat ago that the Trail of Tears stained this country's sacred lands with the blood of Native Americans. We are a part of the healing bomb when we pause, remember, honor, and reflect. Happy Native American Heritage Month. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. You can watch the uncut version of today's episode on my YouTube channel. Spirituality Matters with Rev Carla. You can always connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, and at my website at revcarla.com, where you can find the latest information on live teachings, courses, and my memberships. I'm so honored to be in this space with you. Go in peace and be at peace. Go in love and may you be loved. Go and know that others are on this journey with you and you are not alone. You are seen and deeply and unconditionally loved just the way you are. Blessings on your week, and I'll see you soon.